Our sermon this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Father, we come now to hear from you. It brings us great joy to sing the song we just sang of the wonderful matchless grace of Jesus in light of the truths that are open before us in your word. The truth of man's rebellion against you. In the midst of abundant provision, in the midst of paradise, in the midst of your fellowship, those whom you created in your image still chose to join the devil's rebellion. And we all have thrown our lot with him. And so we need grace. We need wonderful and matchless and blood-bought grace. And so please remind us of our great need today. Father, will you show us what you have saved us from today? And will you, by your Spirit, implant within us a deep hatred for sin and rebellion today? That we may follow you more faithfully. That our lives may be characterized by joyful submission and passion and obedience to our good God and Father. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the TV series, All in the Family, Archie's son-in-law asks, Tell me, Archie, if there's a God, why is the world in such a mess? Archie responds, Why do I always have to give the answers, Edith? Tell this dummy why. (laughs) Edith answers, Well, I suppose it's to make us appreciate heaven better when we get there. Perhaps. But perhaps there's another reason why this world is in such a mess. Perhaps it has less to do with us appreciating heaven and more to do with our transgression against the God who made us. Perhaps it's our fault, not God's. I read, uh, well, last night I was watching the news, as I, I do most evenings. 
The lead story on the news was the difficult race relations that this nation is having in the many rallies towards that effect. The second story was memorializing the one-year anniversary of the Aurora Theater Massacre. The story following that was about the sexual harassment charges that the San Diego mayor is undergoing. Then we learn about three bodies being found in a Cleveland suburb. Finally, when they got to the good news story at the end of the program, it was about snow in Texas for a six-year-old girl because she has cancer. The world is in a mess. The world is not what it's supposed to be. The reason how we got this place, the answer given to us is Genesis chapter 3. And as we studied in in the, the book of Genesis, we come now to this chapter in which we are finally introduced to sin and Satan, to curse and shame, to guilt and rivalry, to pain and frustration, to judgment and even to death. Up to this point, all of creation has lived in paradise where a crater God has been keen to pour out blessing upon blessing, provision upon provision, where there was no sin and there was no snake. One commentator puts it this way. Adam and Eve are living in unparalleled splendor amidst crystal waters and green forests of Eden in a delightful concert with each other and with animals that God had placed in the garden. This magnificent couple shared the same flesh in their naked majesty. And then we get to Genesis 3, and it all begins to unravel, begins to plummet. And we get to Genesis 4, and all of a sudden one brother is rising up to beat another brother dead in a field. By the time we get to Genesis 6 and 7, God is so distraught with his creation that he decides to wipe every air-breathing animal off the face of the earth, save those survived in a boat. And this is the story, in fact, of the rest of the Bible. The story of the rest of human history is the mess in which we live in. In fact, I don't think without Genesis chapter 3, the Bible makes any sense at all. I don't think your life makes any sense. I don't think this world makes any sense. I don't think we can answer why is it so hard if we stop in Genesis 2, in which we were all living there, at least our parents were, in this glorious splendor and peaceful harmony with no, no presence of pain or turmoil or sadness or sickness or murder or sin. And yet we get here and we see what theologians have called over the centuries the fall. I wonder if it's better described as the plummet. As humankind rebels, as humanity falls away from its creator. And so we come to set our heart's attention upon what God has revealed to us here in this chapter in the book of Genesis. The glorious thing about Genesis chapter 3, though we will not see it um, precisely today, but we shall see it as we explore this chapter, is not only is Genesis chapter 3 the the origin of, of sin and guilt and curse and shame and death, it is also where we find the first glimmer of grace. And we see that God in response to sin gives grace and hope. And so let us turn our attention upon it this morning. Let's learn about sin why we do it, what it does to us. I simply would outline these seven verses in three steps. 
Number one, you see a temptation to sin. Number two, you see a rejection of God. And number three, you see the ruin of creation. And so first of all, consider with me um, the temptation to sin as this serpent comes and speaks to our mother Eve about rebelling against God. And the temptation to sin begins with the presence of God's enemy. We see in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This serpent we know is the devil or Satan. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel that the devil was originally an angel which God had created. And yet he was not content there with the position which God had assigned to him. He was not content to be with God, but he aspired to become like God. And so he started a war with God, and he took a third of the angels with him in this rebellion. Jesus Christ would mention in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so the conflict moves from heaven to earth, and it comes to the Garden of Eden, comes to Eve. And friends, it comes to you and I every day. We're born in a war zone. We live in a conflict. I understand people want to deny this, and maybe you're here thinking, I can't believe this man in the 21st century is affirming that there exists one called the devil. I understand that many people would deny his existence, would deny, in fact, an an entire spiritual realm, and and those who don't deny it would just uh, affirm that the spiritual realm is, is entirely good. And the reason we do this, the reason we deny the devil's existence or affirm that all spirituality is good is verse 1 tells us the devil was crafty. He is crafty. He's sneaky. He has plans and schemes in which Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 to not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Or in Ephesians 6, we're encouraged to stand against the schemes of the devil. He has tactics and plans. He, he, he has uh, schemes and he is crafty. And so we must become aware of them that we may not fall into his rebellion. You see, in fact, even look how he comes to Eve. He comes as a serpent. He comes to deceive. He doesn't come as anything threatening to her. He's not coming with fire at his feet and a pitchfork in his hand. Just a harmless little snake. A snake, by the way, that Adam and Eve had total authority over as they ruled the earth, given by God, complete dominion over all creation. And he comes and he just wants to have a conversation with Eve, as harmless as that. He's crafty. Of course, he doesn't come anymore as a talking snake, right? Because if a snake started talking to you, you would run away, right? And go get your gun and come back and shoot it, And so he has other plans, He has other ways of getting to us. He has other ways of approaching to us, all of which often appear innocuous and good and kind. He's very good at getting us to sin. And so we must be aware that the enemy is out there. The enemy is present. And he would tempt you and I. He will do so by helping us to reject God's word. You see what he does here in verse 1 as we read on. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is that what God said? No. It is not what God said. 
But you see what he's doing? He's trying to put doubt in her mind. Did, did God really say? I'm confused about this. Will you help me? I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, he's not, he's not even lying, is he? He's just questioning God's truthfulness. And God knows you need food after all, Eve. He wants you to be happy, I trust. He, he didn't forbid this food to you, did he? I like how Kent Hughes imagines the conversation. Queen Eve, the serpent inquires in astonishment and disbelief. Something is bothering me. Is it really true that God forbade you two to eat of any of these trees? That perplexes me. After all, didn't he pronounce everything very good? And hasn't he put both you and King Adam in charge of it all? Our loving creator wouldn't impose so severe a limitation on you, would he? I don't understand, Eve. Would you please explain the problem to me? And she begins to get us to doubt and to reject God's word. He does so today. Did God really say that marriage should be between a man and a woman? Did, did God really say that there's only one way to get to heaven? Did, did God really say that you should give and sacrifice and serve the Lord? This is what he likes to do. He likes to question God's word. So, well, let's find out what God did say. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 16. We hear what God says. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so God says, yeah, eat, eat of anything. Whatever tree you find, you may partake of, except there's one tree right there in the middle of the garden. I don't want you to eat that because it will kill you. So, so you notice the freedom in which God gives. He has his incredible freedom with one rule. He says, eat any tree you want, take a nap, ride a horse, go for a bike, take a swim. Just don't kill yourself. That's my rule. Don't kill yourself. Don't eat of this tree because when you do, you will die. You see, God is a good God who gives a great deal of freedom. And somehow we, we, people characterize God as this, this taskmaster, this rule giver. And certainly he gives rules, but he does so because he doesn't want us to hurt ourselves. He doesn't want us to run away from him and his protection and the joy in which he would provide for us. He gives us this great deal of freedom with these few restrictions to keep difficulty from us. I think, by the way, this is good advice for parents. That parents, you ought to give as your children, I think, as much freedom as they can responsibly handle. And just keep them from things that would do them harm. I mentioned, I think, uh, a couple sermons ago that I took my oldest three kids backpacking in the Shenandoah National Forest in June. And we had a, just a wonderful and incredible time. And I, I loved the opportunity to be able to give them as much freedom as, as they could. They're, Daddy, can we go play in the creek? I said, yeah, absolutely. Daddy, can we climb a tree? Yeah, go for it. Daddy, can we help with dinner? Absolutely, go for it. Daddy, can we catch a frog? Sure. Daddy, can we ride that bear over there? No, no, you can't. That's, that, you, it's going to harm you. That's dangerous. This is what God says. He says, do whatever you want. I made this all for you. Enjoy it. There's just one tree. And if you eat it, you're going to die. So just don't eat it. And this is the, what God gives. Well, you notice the, the devil begins to question that word. And Eve responds here in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, is that right? Well, kind of. I mean, she got the, the gist of it right. But you notice she adds this little phrase I find curious. Neither shall you touch it. 
Isn't that interesting? God made no mention of touching it in his word. But it almost seems as if Eve is magnifying God's strictness as he exaggerates the restriction that God has given. You know, I, I get the implication that, that God is harsh. It's sign of an unreasonable command, and so she's making it more onerous than it is. Almost as if she doesn't have to obey since it's such a silly, difficult command. She adds to God's word. I think you and I should beware of people who add to God's word. There are a lot of them. A lot of them who take God's word and take the principles here and then begin to add different things to it. We call that legalism. And so if you're not to eat from the tree, well, we'll just build a wall around that tree so you can't touch it, so you don't get close to eating. You ought to be aware of people like that. Especially in the, in the cultures that Allegra and I run in, the large family culture. You will have people in that culture who will say, well, God tells us to have children, therefore you must have seven, or eight, or nine, or fourteen. And they add to God's word when God never says that. Or they say things like, well, you must raise your children, therefore you must homeschool, which we do. But they add this rule. As if, and if you, you're disobeying that, then you are disobeying God. Or people will say, well, we're to keep the Sabbath. Therefore, you can't go out and eat at a restaurant. Or you're not to get drunk. Therefore, you can't touch a beer. And we begin to add to these to God's word. This is what Eve is doing. She's, she's magnifying God's restriction. When I don't think God would really appreciate that. I don't think God wants us to magnify his restrictions. And so beware of those who want to add to God's word as we see Eve does as they fight over the meaning of God's word. You know, what, what should we do when God's word is questioned? Well, we should know it. We should know God's word. Eve's defense was the word of God. To this deceit from the devil, she should have said, Thus says the Lord, we can eat of every tree. He gives us every tree to eat, just one tree, because... We're not to eat because it will harm us. I hope you know, Christian, you are in a spiritual battle and you have one weapon and it is the word of God. I spoke to the teenagers last month from 1 John chapter 2 in which the Bible says young adults have overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in you. This is why every Sunday we labor over God's word. As some would testify at great length. Because we want to get this in our heart. We want to know what God's word is. Because there's a tendency to pervert it and to manipulate it and to fit it within our culture. And today churches all over the place have lost their anchor in God's word and are moving along with the, with the culture in which we live in and tossing aside God's warning against homosexuality and fornication and materialism and pride as things that are out of touch that need to be updated. They say, did God really say these things? In fact, the lies are so subtle and sneaky that we are told if we change the definition of marriage, we are doing so because we are in favor of equality. Or if we destroy the unborn, we are doing so in favor of a woman's freedom. And as God's word becomes perverted and distorted, we must know it. We must be chained to it. Lest we be swept down this current that is rushing around us. And the devil comes and he challenges God's word, but he does not stop there. He goes on to reproach God's character. For you note, verse 4 says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what he's saying? God is lying to you, Eve. You're not going to die. 
The devil, of course, is a liar. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he's the father of lies. We teach our children at home, lying is the language of the devil. I speak English, you speak English, the devil speaks lying. He is the father of untruth. He is a liar. And his great lie here in the garden is to accuse God of doing just that, that God is the liar. And he tells Eve, not only is God lying to you, you won't die, but he tells him, tells her why God is lying to you, because he doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's holding out on you. And so the devil actually comes to Eve as her benefactor. I'm here to help you, Eve. Don't you understand God is not whom he seems to be? And he is telling you mistruth because he does not want you to reach your potential what you can be. Again, I appreciate Kent Hughes and his recount of this tale when he says, Eve, I hate to be the one to bring this, break this to you, but you deserve to know. God has a motive other than love for this restriction. The truth is that God wants to hold you back. Don't you realize that God himself has this knowledge of good and evil, and he knows that this fruit will give you to the same knowledge so that you will rise to his level of understanding and control. Eve, you have to outwit him. I know this garden seems pleasant enough, but really it is a gigantic ploy to keep you in your place because God feels threatened by what the two of you could become. This tree, Eve, is your only chance to reach your potential. And he promises her that her eyes will be open, that she will become wise, that you get to decide, you get to make the rules, you get to do it your way. And he even tells her that you will become like God, that's interesting to me. You become God's equal. This seems to fascinate humanity. You look at all the false religions in this world, they all have one common end goal. You'll become like God. Those who ascribe to the Muslim faith believe that they will inherit a world upon which they shall rule. Those who ascribe to the Mormon faith believe that they will become an all-powerful God like Jesus. Those who ascribe to Buddhism believe that they will be absorbed into godness. Those today will come and tell us that we need to worship ourselves, that we are divine. This is the story that has been told over and over and over again, and it begins with the devil. The death, he says, is simply just a scare tactic to keep you in your place. You can sin and no harm will come to you. I wonder if that sounds familiar. That is the devil's accusation. And so Eve here is presented with a choice, isn't she? Will she trust the devil or will she trust God? You see, every temptation that you and I encounter is a matter of who we believe. It's a matter of faith. Do I believe God or do I believe Satan? Because as we've said before, you never sin out of duty. You never sin out of a sense of obligation. You only sin because you believe the lie that sin holds out to you, that doing this activity will promise you some happiness, some joy, some revenge, some good. That's why you sin. Because you believe the lie of sin. That something good will happen to me if I do it. And so the fight against sin is ultimately a fight for faith. Is God really holding out on me? Will my life really be better if I disobeyed God? Can I cohabitate? My life will be better if I cheated on my taxes or if I didn't pray. And the devil comes and says, you know, you can't be happy without that fruit. Don't you realize that? That's the key to your happiness. Why, why is he holding back on you? Why is he keeping you from your good? I mean, it's just fruit. 
Oh, this is a piece of fruit. You're not hurting anyone. It's not gonna, it's not, no one will even know. It's no trouble. Why, why does God even care, by the way? Why would he put a tree in the middle of a garden and tell you not to eat of it? And he comes. He attacks God's character. And we must decide who we will believe. You will be like God, he says. The sad thing is it never seemed to occur to her that she already was. As we saw in Genesis 1, she was made like God. She already had that gift. And yet she believed the lie. The lie that is told time and time again. If God doesn't give you what you want, you need to go and get it. You need to trust yourself. Friends, may I tell you the person, the last person you probably should trust is yourself. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I would commend God to you. Trust him. His commands are for our good. The few that he gives us, he does because he loves us and doesn't want us to kill ourselves. We ought to trust him. And so we see this temptation come against Eve, and I think we can learn a great deal about how we are to avoid temptation. But I think ultimately the point of this passage here recorded in Genesis 3 is not really to to guide us through temptation, though it's helpful in doing that. I think it's to, to point out our plight, to show us our need. And we see that great need here in verse 6 when we consider the rejection of God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I wonder if Genesis 3.6 is the most devastating verse in the Bible. You, of course, know there's no longer the serpent there. Seems like he's left. There's no dialogue at all. All we have are Eve's thoughts. We peer into her soul. She looks at that which is forbidden and says, well, decides it's good for food. It's a delight to her eyes and it's desired to make her wise. God's command, therefore, is not reasonable. Why is he holding out on me this good? This is how the devil tempts us. This is how we're tempted quite often by focusing not on all the good in which God has given us, but on the few things in which God has restricted from us. You ever notice that when you're tempted, you're not considering all the wonderful provisions that are manifold, your family, your spouse, your children, your job, your health, your wealth, everything that God has given you, all the focus is on the one thing in which he says, no, don't take part in this. And that's the thing we become fascinated with. That's the thing that we begin to wonder, why Why does he hold out on us? It doesn't look deadly, does it? Right? As a matter of fact, it makes my mouth water, she must have thought. How could a good God prohibit such a good thing? How, how could a good God just put it right here in front of us and then expect us to deny ourselves of its pleasure? And so she took of its fruit and she ate it. She did the one thing, just the one thing that God commanded her not to do. And ever since that point, human life has had this tendency towards self-focus and self-destruction. We continue her folly. We continue to harm ourselves and to kill ourselves in sin. And by the way, she's not alone, is she? You notice that? Where's Adam? Well, he is standing right by her side with his finger in his nose. I, I don't know what he's doing. The whole time, doing nothing. Standing, listening to the devil talk to his wife about joining his rebellion. 
Where, I wonder, is the leadership in this home? Where, I wonder, is her protection? Part of me thinks he's just kind of watching to see what would happen. He would really like to eat from that tree, but he's too much of a coward to do it the first time. So I'm going to watch, see if she drops dead. She continues to live, then I'll take a bite. I I think we tend to do this. I I think often, and maybe this doesn't relate to you, but it does a little bit in my home, when I get in my flesh, is that we wait for our spouse to sin in order that we can sin in response and then blame our sin upon them. We will exasperate them until they may nag us or be unreasonable. And then, therefore, we're excused to go out and get drunk with our buddies or find a girlfriend. After all, she's unbearable. It seems like this is what's maybe going on here. And the devil loves it, doesn't he? He wants to destroy this relationship. He loves it when the man is passive and lazy and cowardly. He loves it when the man watches the television while his marriage is destroyed and his children are devoured by a dragon living at ease in his home. He wants to get this woman to think that she's liberated by being in charge, that she doesn't have to submit, that she can make these decisions on her own without the guidance and the protection of her husband. He loves this. He loves it when foolish people kill themselves, which is what happened in this family. Adam should have slammed that forked tongue back in his mouth and throttled him by the neck. At the very least, he should have said, you don't speak to my wife, and you certainly don't speak to her about reproaching my God. You're a liar, and you're leading us to hell. Now get out of my house. And yet he did nothing. I think Eve would have loved it. It's been my experience that women want courageous, masculine, strong, loving, and leading husbands. Instead, everything's upside down. God should have led Adam, who led his wife, Rather, we have the devil leading Eve who leads her husband. And they reject God. They sin. Their sin is a rebellion, isn't it? It is a declaration of independence. It is a fight for freedom from God. They are, in a sense, saying, I will decide what is good. I will decide what is bad. I will do it my way. And we have continued to do this in our day. We're not going to have anybody over us telling us what to do with our time, with our money, with our life, what we do on, when we watch television, what we do on Sunday mornings. We are going to act free from the authority of God upon us. This is a declaration of rebellion. This is a fight for freedom from their creator. And I want you to see in the smallness of the act, they are simply eating fruit, shows us that the horror of sin is not found in the act itself. I mean, this is typically how we evaluate sin. we got big sins over here, and we got small sins over here, and the big sins are what other people do, and the small sins are what we do. And the Bible, I think, here clearly shows us that the tragedy of this event is not found in eating fruit. It's not a sin to eat fruit, by the way, unless God tells you not to eat that fruit. That's not wicked. The tragedy is this prideful exaltation of the self over a gracious creator. It is the divorce of the creation from its maker. It is a mistrust of God. In fact, perhaps we've asked this question already in our study of Genesis. Why did God make this tree? And why did God put it right there in the middle of the garden? I mean, it's a nice garden. Can't you put the tree on the side or over 
a mountain range? I think it was to test them, wasn't it? Every day they'll have to decide, do they love God or do they hate God? Will they submit to God or will they rebel against God? Do they believe God or do they disbelieve God? It's it's a test of their love. Is God enough? Or do I want something more? I mean, this garden is nice and everything is nice, but I wonder if there's something better. And so if they eat of the tree, in a sense they're saying, God, you and all your gifts do not satisfy me. I want more than what you can offer. This is what you declare to God when you sin. You are not enough. You are not desirable. And I shall meet my desires elsewhere. But it's not simply a test of their love, I don't think. It's also a test of their faith. Do they believe God? Do they believe his word? I mean, he gave them this command. Should that not be enough? Should his word not be sufficient? You notice, by the way, God's not standing by the tree all the time, just kind of getting in their way, keeping them from the tree. I, mean, I think the implication, if we get on later on, Genesis 3, he's left. He's probably gone back to heaven. He'll return eventually. But there they are, left with a poison tree and the command of God. He doesn't tack a warning sign up on the tree. He doesn't put barbed wire around the tree. He doesn't put angels circling that tree to guard it. He simply gives them his word and wants to know what they believe him. Will they obey him? Even if they don't understand. Even if it's confusing to them why they can't eat of this tree. When God says, if you eat it, you'll die. Will they obey? See, God gives us his word and he wants us to live by it. This is why we have it. We live by God's word. Even when we don't understand. His word should be enough for us. But to eat of this tree is a declaration, I don't believe you. You see, when we sin, what we are saying to God is, you are a liar. That what you said, that you you are holding out on us, you have said you are for our good, but we believe this sin is for our good, and you simply, God, are not trustworthy. But it's not simply just a test of their love or their faith, but it's also a test of their submission Will they yield to God or will they assert themselves over him? You see the tree, you know what the tree is? It is a constant reminder that they are not God. It is a constant reminder that they are under authority, that there is someone above them that they are to submit to. So to eat of the tree is to declare that I will not have you as my God. I will do as I please. I will decide what is right and what is wrong. I will decide what is in my best interest. This is what we do when we sin. We say that I will have no king but myself. I will sit upon my throne. You are not worthy. I want you to understand sin today, friends. The sins that you and I commit. Perhaps we have done so even today. Every time you do, it's a declaration that God is not desirable. That God is not trustworthy. And God is not worthy. This is what our parents declare. And so they divorce themselves from God's loving care and authority in the midst of paradise. And I read this and I know I would do no better, but I can't help to wonder what must, what more must God do to get us to trust Him? What more blessings must He give to us for us to love Him and follow Him? But they don't. They rebel. They reject God. You see, lastly, creation is immediately affected, ruined. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew 
that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we considered this verse a little bit last week when we talked about marriage, but suddenly they are um, filled with shame about their nudity. The reason is not because they became instantly ugly. The reason is because the security of their marriage has been destroyed. The one viewing my nakedness is no longer trustworthy. Therefore, I am not willing to be vulnerable around them. If she will turn her back upon the Creator, surely she will turn her back upon me. She is no longer safe. If he has done this, he will clearly not continue to treasure me and to nourish me. He is not safe. And so their marriage is assaulted. Creation is immediately assaulted. And and what do they do in the midst of this? Confession, repentance, reconciliation, restoration. No, they make clothes from fig leaves. They ignore the problem, what just happened to them, and they cover the symptoms. They're vulnerable, and so let's deal with it. We'll just cover up so we don't feel vulnerable anymore. Never asking why did we go from not vulnerable to vulnerable. This is the religious response to sin. This is the first false religion here in Genesis 3-7. This is the fig leaf religion. Man trying to cover his sin through self-effort, self-atonement. And this continues to get replayed. Here in God's paradise, this beautiful creation is fractured. And it becomes unraveled. All the wonder that he has made, the majesty and the perfection of it. And it has never been the same. This is the world in which we live in. This is the heart of Christianity. As uncomfortable these truths are to consider this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand, this is, this is at the heart of what Christians believe. That things are not what they are supposed to be. And it's because of our sin. It's because of our rebellion, our mistrust, our lack of faith, our divorce from God. And we, by the way, all have this heart. It's just not Adam and Eve. It's simply not our parents. But it's within all of us. No one needs to be taught how to sin. That comes quite natural. No one needs to be taught to be selfish or to hurt others. We know how to do that now instinctively. For there is something wrong with this world. There is something wrong with us. And I think every person, Christian or not, recognizes this. They understand that. And so what's the solution to this this sin-wracked world? Well, we've moved beyond fig leaves, thankfully. But we just make new ones called by other names. We don't need fig leaves, but we need more education. We don't need fig leaves, but we need more government. We need more psychology. We need more medicine. We need self-esteem. We need relationships. We need to put ourselves first. We need to deal with poverty. And we have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. And you tell me, how is it working? You look around and you tell me, how are things going? It still seems the problem is with us. You know what we need is to be saved. We don't need fig leaves. We need salvation. So everything in this world, everything bad in this world, everything has one cause. Everything bad in your heart, in your home, in your workplace, in this church, in our community, it all has one problem, one cause, sin. 
It is the cause of everything that is wrong. And we need to be saved from it. And the glorious thing is that Eve would one day, our mother would have a daughter, our older sister, named Mary. And Mary would have a son named Jesus. Jesus, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans chapter 5, is called the second Adam. And just as the first Adam dealt with the devil, so would the second. In fact, you notice how Jesus begins his ministry. He gets baptized and he goes out to a garden. No, he, he goes to the wilderness, to the desert. And because this world is more of a world of deserts than gardens, now that sin is here. And there in the, in the desert, does he enjoy God's bountiful provision as our father Adam did? No, he, he doesn't. He has absolutely no provision. He has no food and no water. And there he lives for 40 days. And you know who shows up? The serpent. And he tempts him. He tempts him with food, just as he did with our father Adam. He says to Jesus, listen, you haven't eaten for 40 days. What kind of father is your God? I mean, who does that to their son? No food for you for 40 days. Certainly that's unreasonable. Make some food for yourselves. And when Jesus will not buy into that temptation, he, he tempts him a second time. And he tells Jesus, I will give you all of this world. I'll give you it all. And he says, I I know your father is going to give it to you, but you have to go through the cross first. You have to die this agonizing, miserable, horrible death. What kind of father is going to put his son on a cross? You know what, Jesus? I will give it all to you. All you have to do is for a moment, bow your knee to me and it's yours. Jesus resists that temptation. And so he comes at him a third time and brings him to the top of the temple and says, okay, if your father is so good, why don't you throw yourself off and see if he'll send his angels to catch you. You show me. You keep telling me your father's good. You show it to me, Jesus. You prove his character to me. And when Jesus would not follow into that temptation, he succeeded where our father Adam failed. In fact, he succeeded with the word of God, didn't he? Every time the devil came at him, he came back with the word of God. And by the way, the devil just didn't come at him on those 40 days. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that he has been tempted in every way as we are like us. He has been tempted to lust and tempted to be drunk and tempted to lie and to covet and to be greedy. Tempted not to forgive or not to pray or be filled with pride. He is tempted in every way like us, but is without sin. No sin. A life of temptation beyond your imagination. And he would not rebel. He would obey every time. He would not kill himself. And so the devil would do it for him. The devil would possess Judas, get Judas, his apostle, to sell him. And his, his betrayers would gather him around and after mocking him and beating him and causing him to suffer beyond imagination, they nailed him to a cross where they killed him. They murdered him. The second Adam there dying on a cross. It looks like a victory for the devil, doesn't it? But friends, may I tell you, it was on that cross that Jesus won. 
It was on that cross that all of my rebellion, all of my mistrusting, fruit-eating, all my lack of love and lack of submission to my God was paid. And all of yours was paid, and that of our parents, Adam and Eve, was paid. And just when the devil thought he won, Jesus has his great victory over him. He triumphs over the devil. He triumphs over sin. And it was on that day that you and I were saved. Saved from all of our wickedness and all of our sin. You see, the devil may have used our first father, the first Adam, for his purpose, but it was the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who used the devil for his purpose. And he saved us. And three days later, to show the devil his victory, he kicked open that stone and emerged from that grave victoriously as the Lord of Lords. And so I wonder as we end our time this morning, Are you saved? I think that's why I'm supposed to talk to you this morning. Are you with Jesus? Or are you with the devil? Are you headed to heaven? Or are you headed to hell? Has your sin been paid for? By the blood of the cross. The great and glorious thing is that though we reject God, he is so kind and good and gracious that even in this very moment, friend, if you would end your rebellion, you just lay down your arms and say, I give up, I surrender, this is not working for me. He will give you full amnesty. He will welcome you into his kingdom. In fact, God, your maker, will adopt you as his son or daughter. You can do so today. And I'm going to ask everyone if you bow your heads. We're not going to do anything weird. In fact, you don't want to bow your head. That's fine. I think it just often helps us to think. I just want to ask you a couple questions as we end our time. Friend, what are you trusting in for your eternal life? What are you counting on when you die and stand before God? I ask that God would reveal it to you if it's just some fig leaf by another name. Or are you counting in the blood of Jesus? Perhaps this morning God has revealed to you that you are in rebellion to him, that you are not forgiven by him. And that even this very moment, the Spirit is giving you a desire to be reconciled to God. Perhaps if that's going on in your heart, you would pray after me silently in your own heart Father I have sinned I have rebelled I have gone my own way and I need your help I don't want to live this life anymore I want to be forgiven I want to follow you and I believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life without sin, and died on the cross to pay for my sin debt. I believe he rose again on the third day. And I ask you now, Jesus, to be my God and King. Wash me clean. I want to live the rest of my days for you, God. I love you. Perhaps if you prayed that this morning... 
And if you meant it in your heart, the great and glorious truth that the Bible tells us is that you are now rightly related to God. Your life has changed for eternity. And I rejoice if that's happening to your heart. But I do know what the devil wants to do is he wants to come to you and say, okay, let's keep this private. Let's not tell anyone. And so I pray you would not listen to that lie because this is not a private decision. You are going to need help. And so after the service, certainly I would love to hear of this good news or another member of this church would love to rejoice. Perhaps you need to speak to your spouse or a friend. Would you not do that? Would you not announce this great and glorious news? And for the rest of us who know Jesus as our Lord, can we not now go and give him thanks for the grace which we have received due because of our sin? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great grace, your abundant grace for us. We thank you for the forgiveness which you have given us. We're sorry that we sin. We don't, we don't want to sin. We don't, sometimes we don't even know why we do it. So will you please make us more like you? Will you please plant in our heart a hatred for the rebellion that's in us? That we may become like Jesus. We love you. We thank you that you have saved us. Help us to live in light of that salvation today and tomorrow and for the rest of our days for your glory and for our eternal joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.